Today's episode of the City of Smack podcast is brought to you by Roll Recovery. I've been a big fan of their products for a while now, and if you haven't heard of them, then you're missing out. A couple years back, runner Jeremy Nelson thought of the now famous foam rollers. He had a couple key points that he wanted to hit on with his product. First, he wanted to bring the massage force into the roller. You know, regular some of the regular rollers are pretty boring. This one is different. Number two, something that fits different body sizes and targets key muscle groups. That's important. Number three, bring that flushing effect to move blood and waste products out as you're rolling. And lastly, make it portable. It's helpful for everyone. But eventually, roll recovery came to life. And now it's a hit with runners of all levels, cyclists of all levels. Everyone's using it. I'm a big fan of the R8 for a real good deep tissue massage after my runs. I keep an R3 at my desk at work. That That's a great one that I could just relieve my planter and, and, and use that as I'm sitting at, a, at my desk. Check them out today, rollrecovery.com, and Roll Recovery on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My guest for today's show is Olympic Marathon Trial 6th place finisher, Matthew Yano. And we're going to have a couple NAZ Elite episodes this month as part of a little partnership we have going with Roll Recovery. And in each episode, you're going to get a couple tips from, uh, from each coach or athlete on uh, recovery. And also, I'll be giving away an R3 at the end of the episode, more details. Let's start the show. All right, and now we welcome on Matt Yano to the City of Mag podcast. Matt is a 61-minute half marathoner, 212 marathoner, and he runs uh, with NAZ Elite. Uh, Matt, you had, uh, I think we're catching you not too long after a workout from this, uh, how's everything going and uh, what was the workout? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, we did, we just got back a little bit ago from a workout down in Camp Verde, Arizona, which is, uh, it's at about 3,000 feet elevation um, compared to 7,000 in Flagstaff, so it's it's nice to be able to drop down and it's about a 45-minute drive, so uh, it's pretty easy to get there and um, be able to run a lot faster than we can up at altitude but uh the workout this morning is uh was one that ben would classify as critical velocity um so kind of that like half marathon between 10k and half marathon pace um so we had 25 by 400 uh just pretty smooth we hit mostly 69s the goal was 70s um everyone i think felt pretty good and this is kind of the beginning of like the really marathon specific part of the training segment. So um, I think everyone's in a really good place right now and um, kind of the whole team is firing on all cylinders. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's a really cool time to be uh, part of the group. And we have so many people getting ready for marathons that uh, the vibe is just really good right now. How different is this from previous marathons that you've geared up for? Because uh, it's not like you're a seasoned veteran, like, well, Meb is, is a whole nother level, but you do have a couple marathons under your belt now where you can call yourself a marathoner. Uh, how is this different now that you've got that experience in the, in the tank? You know, it's, uh, I've run, I've run five marathons now. Um, and I've definitely made my share of mistakes and, and I've learned by, um, making those mistakes. So I think there's value in that. Um, but I think, you know, like I said, I think we're in a good place right now. I think having so many of us or seven seven of our athletes plus Matt Fitzgerald, who's 
training with us this fall um, in order to write a book about it, about his experience training as a pro. Um, so there's eight of us total that are running marathons this fall. And um, like I said, the vibe is really cool. It's by far the most marathon training partners that I've ever had. Um, I've gone through quite a number of segments on my own, um, really with no workout buddies or um, anything like that. Uh, the trials was nice because we had a couple other athletes in there as well. Um, but this is kind of the first one that, you know, we're, we have big goals where we're, we're aiming to run really fast and um, to have training partners to help get through the daily grind of, um, you know, working towards those goals is something that I'm really looking forward to. And I think I've already kind of seen some of the benefits of that um, just with the past two years of struggles that I've had with injury and stuff like that. So um, I think that having all of those teammates as part of this journey back to health for me has been um, immensely helpful. And I, and I think that without all of them, like I certainly wouldn't be uh, probably as excited to run a marathon as I am right now. What's your proudest marathon achievement so far? Because I mean, it, it seems like to, to an outside spectator, six at the Olympic trials is awesome. Uh, was that the case for you? Whew, um, that's tough. I, I would say I've been probably more disappointed in, in more of my marathons than not so far. Um, I think I set really lofty goals for myself and, um, the trials was a little bit bittersweet for me because, um, I had been kind of dealing with these pelvic injuries for a while and, um, so going into that race, I wasn't real. I, I was fit, but it wasn't as fit as I wanted to be. And but then I still came out of it, you know, getting sixth place, which was higher than a lot of people thought I would have gotten. And um, I don't know. So I, I had really mixed emotions about that. Um, I was proud of the way that I competed, but disappointed not to make the team because I really thought that I could have. So it was kind of a mixed bag of emotions on that day. But I guess looking back over everything, that uh, that probably stands out as one of the ones that I faced the most obstacles and, and still ran probably objectively the best maybe in those conditions on that day um, out of the five that I've done. So, yeah, I guess, I guess I would agree with that. Um, and then, you know, of course, like a marathon where you have your PR is always uh, a good one. So Berlin in 2015 um, is one that I think fondly of and um, running to 10 pace through 35 K, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm chipping away. I'm getting there. I'm getting to where I want to be. Um, I'm just not quite there yet. So, uh, but I'm confident that the chips will fall um, where they, where I would like them to uh, over the next couple marathons. And so, um, yeah, I guess maybe trials first, and then and then Berlin second if I had to rank them. At the same time, if I if we would have gone back in time four years prior to the trials marathon. So in 2012, and someone came up to you and said, Matt, I think you're going to finish, you know, sixth at the Olympic trials marathon. What would you have said to, to something like that? Like that, uh, I guess, like prognostication that, I, I mean, to, at that point you still hadn't run one. Yeah. Yeah. My first marathon was in 2014. Um, but yeah, I think, so I was at the 2012 trials, um, in Houston, I, I ran the half marathon the day the day after the race, um, and that was my first half at the time. Um, but I think, I don't know, I, I think I would have, 
this is going to sound like maybe a little bit arrogant, but I think I would have uh, said that I could do better than that. Um, I think that I've always kind of felt like I was going to be a marathoner. And I think my coach in college always felt like that. So we kind of sacrificed some shorter term success in college and faster PRs in the 5k and 10k for, you know, high mileage when I was still developing, you know, in those college years, um, just, just, uh, thinking ahead um, for a marathoning future. And so um, I think, yeah, I, I believed at the time that the marathon was really going to be my event. And I still believe that. And um, like I said, I've just made some mistakes along the way and I've learned from those. And um, I've been fortunate to have some, some good people in my corner and people to learn from. And so um, I think that it's just a matter of, you know, the marathon isn't something you learn overnight. It's not something that, you can train for uh, in just a couple months or even a couple years. I think it's just this huge body of work that goes into it. Um, and I think that, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of slowly getting there and I'm uh, improving little by little. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think hopefully in another couple of years at the 2020 trials, I think I'll be even fitter than I was uh, in, in 2016 and um, in a better position to try to make a team. And I felt, I felt really confident, uh, last year in 2016 that I was going to make the team. So I think if I can just keep building that confidence and keep putting in good work and stay healthy, um, you know, I guess we'll see, we'll see where the marathoning future goes, but I think the future is still bright. So, um, yeah, I would have, I would have acknowledged that, uh, that would be an awesome, um, thing to achieve and an awesome accomplishment, but I think that I would have set my sights higher still. Definitely. It, so the weather in Los Angeles for that marathon, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. How <laughs> how tough exactly? How tough was it for a competitor? Because I guess you you're I think the first person we've had on on the podcast who participated in in that marathon. So how tough was it? And I guess like just seeing some of the carnage as you're as you're passing by, you see some of these guys who pulled out. What goes through your head when you see that? Oh, yeah, it was tough. I mean, we knew, we had an idea that LA at that time could be warm and the conditions wouldn't be ideal, which was actually why I ran the LA Marathon in 2015, um, a year a year before the trials. And the conditions there were very similar to what we faced on um, the day of the trials. So, uh, you know, and I, that was something that was kind of like a trial run for us. Um, Scott Smith and I both ran LA Marathon that year before as well. So, um, it was something that we were kind of, it was in the back of our minds for a while and we knew that conditions probably weren't going to be ideal for running fast and that we were going to be facing a really tough day. And so we did as much as we could, um, training in Flagstaff in the winter to prepare for the heat, which is, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but, um, <laughs> you know, cause we get really, we're up in the mountains in Arizona, so we get tons of snow and last, last year and December through January, February was a particularly tough year. Um, but, you know, we kind of just pushed that out of our minds and, you know, there's nothing that we could have done to change what the conditions were going to be. So we just tried to deal with it as best as we could. And, um, we dropped down for a lot of workouts down to lower elevation where it was warmer. Um, we overdressed on the days <laughs> that weren't as cold. Um, we did a sea level training camp in San Diego and we overdressed there for the last two, two and a half weeks. Uh, we did sauna sessions, we did hot tubs, we, you know, we, we were trying to do as much as we could to acclimate our bodies to the heat that we were going to face on race day. So, um, 
but it was it, it, that doesn't you know you can you can prepare as much as you want and it's still uh when you face that on on a marathon uh race day in particular it's it's going to be tough and um you know we had like the cooling vests and all that stuff on race morning and um you know we we had to deal with it just just like everyone else did and so um it was tough i mean out on the course like the some of the things about the race got a little bit messed up you know the sponges that they were going to be giving us were pre-soaked and so that was a little bit of a uh, <laughs> an obstacle we had to deal with and so they had volunteers that were running up to the target up the street and they were getting rags and tearing them apart and soaking them in water and trying to get them out on the course and um the tables with water were in some different spots than where they said they were going to be and so um, we we had a few other challenges to face, um, and then it was like you know I was taking in more fluids uh, really than I ever had in any race before, and that oh that's another thing actually we practiced in training was drinking more because we you know we're anticipating the heat on race day. So um, whereas in most marathons I might drink like four to six ounces of fluids every you know three miles or five k. Um, in LA that year for the trials, I was drinking like 10 to 12 ounces. So, um, pretty much double plus then water in between, you know, our special fluid station. So it was hard. It was hard to stay hydrated and, um, definitely, you know, from, I don't know, 18 miles pretty much to pretty close to the finish. Um, I kept feeling like sharp, uh, like kind of twinges in my calves, like, like I was going to, you know, cramp up and get a Charlie horse. And uh, so that was something that we had to deal with, but I'm sure I wasn't the only one. Uh, but then you have someone as seasoned and, and as talented and uh, hardworking as Shalane and she's dealing with like heat stroke and, you know, all these things. And so it was definitely <laughs> a tough day, um, but we just kind of focused on what we could control and the rest, uh, you know, we just tried to focus on competing and, and, keeping ourselves in the race and um i think overall we did a pretty good job of that but there was definitely carnage towards the end i mean you saw like the group that i was running with for a long time you just saw people dropping out left and right and contenders you know people you thought would be in it um the whole way and would be fighting for you know those three spots on the olympic team you saw Dathan drop out and diego estrada and sam chalenga and just you know these really class act guys um that were just for whatever reason struggling from whether it was their first marathon or the conditions or whatever it might have been i think there was one section of maybe i don't know 30 meters of the course that was covered <laughs> uh <laughs> we, we you run under a bridge at one point um mm -hmm. and that was the only shade on the entire course the rest of it was all exposed and so um maybe not an ideal place in those conditions to run a marathon but uh you know, it was good, good practice for what uh, our marathoners faced in Rio. So um, it, hindsight, I think it was probably a pretty good selection race. At any point, I mean, we talked about the, the carnage and seeing these people drop off. But early on, and it's, I guess it is like an Olympic trials race, and maybe there isn't much talking going on among, like, the competitors. But did it look easy on anyone, or was everyone dreading it? And did anyone say anything? uh as you guys are running um i think there was i think i think it was on everyone's mind i think um <laughs> you know seeing people like before the start before the gun went off like dousing themselves in water and seeing like galen on the finish on the start line you know with his hands in this 
like some kind of contraption, this cooling <laughs> contraption and seeing the number of people that were wearing cooling vests. Like I remember Meb was wearing one and Luke Puskedra and Dathan and myself and Scott Smith. Like I just remember all these people wearing cooling vests and, you know, so I think it was, it was something that a lot of people were aware of. And um, I think most people probably acknowledged that it was going to really affect the race and how fast it was going to be. And, um, and then once we got out, I think people were really hesitant to go to the front. And I remember a couple of the first miles being like, you know, 512, 515, 520. Like they were, they were, you know, pretty slow for um, as flat of a course and as fast of a course as it could have been if, if conditions were good. So, um, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think the number of people that were also going for water pretty much right away and grabbing those rags that I was talking about, I think. I think everyone was really aware of it and everyone was just trying to stay ahead of those cramps that they might have anticipated later on in the race. So um, most people seemed aware of it. Um, and unfortunately, probably some of the ones who weren't aware of it early on maybe didn't care as well. But uh, it seemed like it was something that most most of the contenders were kind of acknowledging early on. Um, I don't remember anyone really talking about it. Um, I remember at one point I was, I was running a lot of the race with Dave and I remember at one point when like when the big move was made um, around 15 or 16 miles by um, Tyler, a lot of people, I remember Dave saying like, it's too soon, it's too early, it's too fast. Um, and I, I don't know, looking back on that, I don't know if that was just because of heat um, and he was concerned about cramping and, or I don't know if he maybe wasn't feeling as good. Um, but for someone like me who was like a lot younger in my marathoning career, maybe than Dave who I see as, so much more experienced, um, obviously having run 207, but uh, I kind of just keyed off of him and I was like trusting his instincts and um, unfortunately then a couple miles later he ended up dropping out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was something that was kind of just unsaid, but I think most people were aware of it. I think it just kind of implied that it was going to be a tough day and um, we all were just going to have to grit it out in the last like 10 miles, 10, 12 miles once the heat really elevated, especially since I don't think we – the men didn't start until, like, 10, 20 in the morning or something. So uh, really allowed the temperature to skyrocket throughout the race. So let's work our way a little bit toward present day. Uh, so about eight months ago, you were in a body brace and crutches. So was that, I guess, an injury that just kind of came came up after a, a race like this just takes so much out of you? And I guess, like, just could you explain, I guess, what the injury process is like and then – the being able to come back from from something that sounds so severe yeah um yeah i kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier but the last the last like two years for me have been kind of rough um i had in after the trials actually um well leading into the trials about two weeks before the trials i had an mri taken on my pelvis um i had been dealing with just a lot of pain um like in my lower abdomen since a couple of weeks before Berlin, actually, even. So it was like July of 2015. Um, and wasn't really sure what it was, but I, I could train through it for the most part. Um, the downside was like I couldn't really do much. I couldn't do core work. Like I couldn't do a plank. I couldn't do a front plank. So my core workouts were really limited, but I was able to run for the most part um, and keep up most of my mileage. So I didn't think really that much of it and got through Berlin fine without feeling much at all. Um, took off two weeks came back to Flagstaff and started running again. And I was like, oh man, my pelvis still really hurts. <laughs> um, so I was going down and seeing John Ball quite a bit in Phoenix. He's like the miracle worker of the running world. 
Um, and I, my mileage stayed super low for like all of October, all of November. And I hit December and I was like, I, I have to just start ramping my mileage back up. The trials are in two and a half months. And so I kind of just pushed, pushed aside the pain and, and trained through it. And, um, then fast forward a couple months to the trials was still dealing with it, but, um, obviously was able to run, um, got through that race and then couldn't really run afterwards at all. So I took, um, I ended up being off for like four months, four and a half months, something like that. Had to get surgery on both sides of my pelvis at the time in April of 2016. Um, and I had, so they diagnosed it as, uh, both my rectus abdominis muscles on both sides were torn. Both my adductors were torn. Pectineus on both sides was torn. Um, I had a partial labral tear and I had severe osteitis pubis. So, um, had a lot going on at the time. Um, had it all repaired surgically with the exception of the partial labral tear, which I actually did not know about at the time. Um, got back to training, had the best marathon training segment of my life for New York, um, which really surprised me because I had just taken off four months. So I was like worried that I was going to be constantly chasing fitness and trying to find my way back. And, um, it just came, it came back really easily. And, um, by far I had the best workouts that I've ever had. And so, uh, we were really optimistic about New York. And then about three weeks beforehand, um, I had an 18 mile steady state that I was doing in Flagstaff and I felt like a tweak in my back on, on the left side, which was the side that I later learned I had a partial tear, um, in April. And so it felt like it was my SI joint. So I wasn't that worried about it. I thought, oh, a little treatment, um, when I get to sea level and, you know, some dry kneeling, some treatment and adjustments from John Ball before the race and I'll be fine. Um, and then fast forward to the race and felt fine starting out. Um, and then a couple miles into the race, like I definitely went out too aggressively in New York and that like, I acknowledge that and I shouldn't have gone out as fast as I did, but I was excited and you know, that happens. Um, but then felt that tweak again, in my back, and then it started to move into my hip and I just felt like something really wasn't right. And so finished the race, um, worst performance of my career so far, probably, but I finished, which, uh, I guess I was somewhat proud of. Um, and then took 10 days off, tried to, uh, go out to test some shoes for Hoka, um, on that 10th day. And I was like, I cannot run a step. This is by far the worst, like the worst pain that I've ever felt with running before. Um, so I called the surgeon that I had seen in April of 2016. And I was like, I, you know, there's something else in here. I need to come back. I need you to check it out. And, so I flew back to the East Coast, back to Philadelphia, and they did some more scans, and um, they found a complete labral tear. So um, that was tough because I had already, you know, earlier in 2016 taken four months off. I thought I was done with it. Um, kind of had some this lingering, like, discomfort in that area, but I was like, oh, I just kind of wrote it off as, as lingering pain from the surgery, and it's, it's going to get better. It'll go away. It's phantom pain. It's just I need to rewire my brain to that spot and um, never did go away and then had those issues uh, before New York and then in New York itself. And so um turned out like I was wrong. It was an underlying partial tear and then complete tear after the race. So um, yeah, underwent surgery the beginning of December to correct that. 
Um, and then it was in a brace for like another four months. <laughs> uh, I think that second time I took off like five months, uh, started running like the beginning of April with like a minute jog, minute walk times five. So it was really humbling to completely start over. <laughs> like I've never, I've never been so humbled in my life. Um, and that was hard. Like five, five by a minute was like a hard effort for me. Um, so yeah, I mean, to see like where I've gotten back to now, I'm like on my schedule this week, I'm running 125 miles, but it's been a really long process of um, just patience and like staying positive and trusting the process and um, having the team has been awesome for that because I think like without the team, there were there were a lot of dark days <laughs> over my last like nine, 10 months where I thought like I would never run another marathon, you know, I didn't think that I could get back to the level where I was before and just having teammates who were there supporting me and having a coach who was there supporting me and my family and friends and just having all of those people behind me to encourage me on the days that I was feeling rough um, is like something I wouldn't trade for the world. So they've been, they've made a huge difference in, in this like comeback, if you want to call it that, um, to where now I'm I'm thinking really big again and I'm I'm dreaming really big I'm making lofty goals again and I do feel like Frankfurt will be a step in that direction. Um, I don't know that I'll uh, set my sights as high this time as I would had I not had the past two years that I did, but um, I feel confident and and my therapists and surgeons feel confident that Frankfurt can be a good step in the right direction and um, hopefully I can come out of that feeling good and with my body feeling strong and then um, you know we make more plans after that to take the next step whatever that might be so it's been a long process but um, I think in the end like it's made me address a lot of little weaknesses that maybe I was neglecting um, over the last couple years Uh, so hopefully I'll come out of it better on the other side. So there's a couple I guess reports just from NAZ's camp, I guess, from conversations I've had with Ben and, and someone like Fobble, that it seems like you love it when these workouts are hard, on, and like especially the ones <laughs> that on paper freak you out. It seems like you just embrace that and kind of channel that into a big confidence boost once you're able to accomplish that. Uh, how true is is what Ben and Scott are saying? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely true. Um, I mean, I I'm one... I love workout days. I look forward to them. I thrive on them. Like I'm constantly asking Ben to give me more volume, harder workouts. Like I'm just, that's just my personality. I'm I'm very type A. I'm very motivated intrinsically. And I just, I always want to be just like pushing myself to try to find my limits. Um, And yeah, I mean, I I look forward to those days. I don't so much like the easy days <laughs> um, where you just go out and run like 10 or 12 miles and then have an afternoon run. Like, I just don't look forward to those like I do the other days. And um, we actually kind of, we were talking about this a little bit during the workout this morning or during the cool down, um, how like Scott, Fobble, and my mindset are very different. Like I, <laughs> myself and, and Marty um, Heher, who's, uh, you know, on our team as well, like, we're both kind of the positive, like, you know, we can do this, guys, you know, this is going to be great, like, we're just, like, kind of the more upbeat, um, or, or have kind of the more upbeat inner voices on the team, and then Bobble is like, this is going to be really hard, this is going to be the worst day of my life, like, 
you know, he's kind of the more that, and that's just like where he gets his motivation. Like he goes to those dark places a lot sooner than we do. And, and we kind of take the opposite approach of like trying to stay positive. But, um, and we were just talking about this this morning, we were saying that Marty is a lot more outspoken about his positivity because Bobble really doesn't like that. So, um, he, he doesn't like if you're too outwardly positive. So I kind of keep it to myself. And, um, we had a moment this morning after we finished five of the 400 and kind of like this, this running joke on our team where they had a workout, the guys had a workout indoor this season where they were running 20 by 400 on an indoor track, a 300 meter track at NAU. And after one 400, Marty was like, Hey guys, guess what? Like, only 19 to go. <laughs> and I think Fauble was like really enraged by that. And I think he said that that was one of the only times that he actually like kind of lashed out at Marty um, <laughs> for his positivity. And so me hearing that story after the fact, like I learned not to impart that positivity on Scott. <laughs> so I, I kind of just keep it to myself and I'm just inwardly thinking like, Oh, okay. You know, we got through five, like that was pretty easy. You know, we just, a fifth of the workout, like, I kind of break it down as we go. Uh, but then I actually did say, I was like, you know, if Marty was here, you know what he might say. <laughs> and Bobble just, like, got this grin on his face, and I just felt like he was burning with the rage of a thousand, like, angry men on the inside. And um, I was like, you know, he would say 20 down, or, like, five down, 20 to go. And Scott was like, yeah, but you're not saying that, right? And I'm like, no, I'm not saying it. Marty would say it. And so it was kind of just this little banter that we have. But, uh yeah, we definitely have different approaches, and um, I just, I love the hard days. I feel like, you know, you have different ideologies that people say, like, oh, it's actually the recovery days that you make the biggest gains, and I don't disagree with that, but um, I feel like the hard days are where I really test myself, and those are the days where, you know, when, I, when I'm when i chasing after the goals that I have, you know, written on Post-it notes around my house and my bathroom and stuff like that, like, I... I get closer to those goals on those hard days. And so um, it's something that I really look forward to. And um, I kind of always pride myself on on uh, trying to get through the tough days and um, trying to make them as smooth and comfortable as possible. And so I think now, too, having been through five marathon cycles with Ben, like kind of like you were saying, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm the most seasoned veteran of marathon training, but on the team I am. So, um, you know, I try to, I try to impart whatever I've learned over the last three, four years since I've been doing marathon training, um, onto these other guys and hopefully make their experiences, particularly Fobble, who's, as you know, about to run his first one this fall. Um, you know, hopefully they won't make some of the same, same mistakes that I did early on. And, um, yeah. So if I can help in any way, um, from that perspective, then, you know, I, I hope to be able to do that. And I think that embracing the hard work on, on all those hard days is kind of part of that process. That sounds, that sounds great. Um, so before we move into some fun topics and some recovery tips, just on a pretty sad note, uh, so the track and field community right now is kind of coping with, you know, the, the passing of David Torrance at such a young age. He was only 31 years old. You had a pretty interesting tweet where, I mean, there's been a, a bunch of tributes that that have been awesome. You, you were supposed to get lunch with him, I guess, not too long after. Uh, like, it was, it was pretty unexpected when it happened on a Monday, and you were supposed to get lunch with him on a, on a Wednesday. How much of a shock was the news to you? And I guess, 
what are some of your fondest memories of David because he did spend you know a bunch of time in Flagstaff training? Oh yeah. Um gosh, before I even say anything, I'm already like choked up a little bit. Um yeah, it was tough. It was it was and it continued to be. Um it was really unexpected, like you said, it happened on a Monday morning. Um we had just exchanged text messages on Saturday afternoon. Uh we I was going down to Phoenix again to see John Ball and um we had communicated that I told him I was coming down and, and I was like, Hey, we should meet up for a run. We should go to lunch. And he, he was all about it. He was his typical, like super excited self. And, um, uh, we've been going back and forth recently about, um, donuts of all things. <laughs> he, I, I was telling him like, I'm not much of a donut guy. And he's like, Oh, you just haven't had the right donut. And so he was trying to find this good donut place and in Scottsdale and uh, the Phoenix area. And so, yeah, it was just, it was something that I was really looking forward to um, because he had spent a lot of time in, in Flagstaff and just a couple of weeks prior, uh, he was here training for the world champs and um, we went on runs and everyone talked about like these crazy drill sessions that he does. And I did a couple of those with him and witnessed, you know, all of that. And um, he was just, he was so passionate about everything that he did that, I think it was really infectious and it just like you couldn't you couldn't be in a bad mood when you're around David and so um that was one of the things that I loved about him and um just like spending time with him over the last couple of years and getting to know him better and I felt like in the last year even since he started coming to Flagstaff we got not much closer and then he moved to Phoenix um to train with the Altus group and um you know he for a short time was dating someone that I was really close with uh, who had done a training stint here. And so, you know, there were just all these intricate connections within the running world. And so, um, yeah, I think he was just one of the nicest people in the track world and he didn't care like what you would accomplish. Like he, it didn't matter to him. It was just like, you were a person and he would give you all of his time, all of his attention when he was with you. And so I think that that was something that was really special. And that was something that I really valued and, um, some of my favorite times with him were just some of those like little things like inconsequential moments where you're just like, we're watching world champs and um, I was watching it uh, actually by myself at Ben and Steph Bruce's house because they were out of town and, um, or maybe this was, this might've been USA's actually. Uh, yeah, it was USA's and they were out of town, Ben and Steph. And so I went over to their place and I was watching their dog Um and watching the finals of, I think it was the 800 and David was on his way over, but he was running a little bit late and he was going to miss, uh, <laughs> he was going to miss a couple of the prelims. And I was like, Oh, let me just, I'll FaceTime you real quick. And like, we'll get you, you know, we'll get you on the, um, you know, I'll put my end on the TV so you won't miss <laughs> it while you're driving over. And, um, yeah, it was just like little things like that where, and he was just so excited. And, and if you've ever watched a race with David Torrance, like it is, the most pumped you'll ever be <laughs> like he just gets so into it um and and just so excited about anything that was happening and um yeah it was just it was just uh looking back on that it's it, those moments that i valued the most and um talking about donuts and like just the little things um meeting for tea downtown in downtown live stuff and just like talking about his experiences and running and like him you know, imparting what he's learned over the years to me even. And 
um, someone in a totally different spectrum of events. Like he's 1500 5K, I'm, mar- I'm a marathoner, and I still right. felt like he had so much that he could teach me and that he did teach me. And so it was all those little things that I really valued. And um, I really, I really didn't have words like when I learned about his passing and um, those next couple days were, were particularly tough. And I, um, what kind of, what helped me a lot was going to a service for him down in Phoenix. We went down um, I think on Thursday night, we learned um, pretty late that they were going to have a wake for him down in, in Phoenix. And um, it was really important to me that I'd be there for him and um, just for his family and for all of his friends. And so it's kind of a last minute trip, but we, a couple of us piled into coach Ben Rosario's car and we drove down and, and we paid our respects and we said goodbye and, um, I think it was really helpful for me to get some of that closure and, and I'm sure some of the other athletes as well that went down and, um, and it was, it was good to, it was a different experience than really any other service that I've been to. Um, I've only ever really been to like Italian New York funerals, um, <laughs> which are very distinct from a lot of others. And so yeah. um, this one for David was just like, kind of one by one people would go up to the front of the room and they would share their favorite memories about David and they would tell stories that one minute would have everyone in the room laughing and the next minute everyone was crying. And so um, it was just really cathartic to be able to share all of those experiences about him and just remember him in such a positive light and just to think about the impact that he had in his short time here and um, an impact that I feel like is, is, such a big part of his legacy i think um you know his positivity and his enthusiasm is something that everyone across the board of of the track and field community and and really anyone who knew him i think felt that so um i think that's one of the biggest things that he left with us and um, i'm grateful to have spent even you know just a couple short years of his time here um, with him and to have gotten to know him the way that i did yeah, so I'm gonna we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon, and so I'll head out to uh, Long Island later tonight to check out Kyle Merber's race, and I'm sure they're gonna have a lot of uh, special uh, remembrances for for him out there. Um, but yeah, let's we're gonna move on to some training, uh, some recovery tips, and so these are brought to you by Roll Recovery. The company was founded in Boulder, Colorado, with one major goal: to design and build revolutionary products to help people recover faster and improve their quality of life. They have thoughtfully designed products that help keep you moving. Be happy, be healthy. Check them out today, rollrecovery.com. Follow Roll Recovery on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So, Matt, Roll Recovery products are everywhere on runners' Instagram feeds. Uh, I guess what is your favorite, and I guess what are three uh, tips that you might have for just a common runner on recovery? Uh, so my favorite one, I've been using the R8 for, gosh, pretty much since, since it first came out. I remember, um, I went to the San Diego Rock and Roll Half Marathon in, gosh, was it 20, I think it was 2015, um, which I believe was shortly after they had introduced the R8, Mm -hmm. um, and I had been kind of testing it out and I got to sit down at uh, my agent Josh Cox's 
house with Adriana and Jeremy Nelson, the um, developers and uh, founders of, of Roll Recovery, and um, I got to talk to them about, you know, the, the purposes of their tools, and at the time, they were working on what's now the R3, um, and so I got in fairly early and started using it pretty early in my marathoning career, and um, particularly, like, with all the issues I was talking about with my adductors and um, pretty much everything leading into my core and to my <laughs> pelvis, uh, the R8 it was huge for me, so, because um, I always felt like, you know, I used the rollers for a long time, but the adductors are such a tricky part to really dig in with, with just a regular roller. And I felt like with the R8, it was really um, helpful for me to be able to get in and um, kind of loosen up that area in a in a different way and a lot more helpful way than any of the other products I'd used before. Um, so that's probably my favorite product. It's the one I've been using for the longest time. And um, But then I've also lately really been uh enjoying the R3 for like this tight spot that I have in my left glute medius. Um it's really hard to again alleviate that spot because there's such dense tissue there from the surgery that I had um to repair my labrum. Uh so in that spot of my TSL on the left side, the R3 is great to like for smaller spots to kind of target um and help loosen up those areas. So um, I don't know. You can't go wrong with, with roll recovery. So uh, that's kind of, I don't know, that's been my experience. Um, and then what was your other question? Oh, just so, about recovery tips in general? Yep, three tips. Uh, um, so three tips. Uh, the first one, I guess I'm, I'm kind of notorious for my sleep on the team. Like <laughs> I, I go to bed by like, Especially if I'm in marathon training, I'm in bed by eight or eight thirty pretty much <laughs> every night. Um, I I live a really wild lifestyle, um, and I I mean I'm I'm up at like six six thirty. So, but that's like that's a solid amount of sleep every night. And then yeah. um, every afternoon I nap for like probably two to three hours. Um, so I, I I have no shortage of sleep, uh, but I think like. I don't know. I, I've read, I forget where I saw it, but a couple of years ago, I read an interview with Paula Radcliffe and she talked about um, how so much of her days, so many of her days were, she had everything scheduled out and she always scheduled a nap and she, she was really um, adamant that she sleep like 12 hours a night plus a two hour nap. But like it was, that was one of the most important recovery tips for her. And so I kind of embraced that. Um, idea and uh yeah i just i sleep a lot so that's probably my number one tip uh the second one that i think a lot of people overlook is nutrition um and i by no means have a perfect diet but uh i try to kind of pay attention to what's going in my body and um i try especially as i get closer to a marathon i kind of limit like my artificial sugar intake and and at for anyone who knows me really well, I have a really big sweet tooth, so um, that's like my biggest indulgence post-race. But um, leading into the marathon, I try to be aware of that kind of stuff, and I drink a lot of like green smoothies and like alkalizing green drinks. And um, I work with uh, a company called Red Ace that does organic beet shots. I go through probably a case of those a week because um, beets are really good for uh, getting in nitrates and um, 
delivering, helping deliver oxygen to your muscles and all that. So I drink a ton of those. Um, I work with another company called Garden of Life that has all these like alkalizing green drinks and clean energy bars and, you know, clean proteins and all that kind of stuff. And so I work with them and um, I've been working with them for the last four years, maybe. Um, so that's awesome. And yeah, so just, I kind of pay attention to it, but then there's always like post-workout Scott Smith today. Uh, his mom is pretty famous for her chocolate chip cookies <laughs> and she sent a case of those with him to Flagstaff this time. And Scott made all of our days by giving us post-workout chocolate chip cookies. Um, and we also, uh, were down in Camp Verde. Like I said, it was probably, I don't know, 80 something degrees by the time we finished the workout. And this place where we usually stop to get some snacks before we head up the mountain is there's like, there's a gas station, there's a Starbucks, there's a Mexican place, there's like McDonald's and Carl's Jr. and all these places, um, to kind of to satisfy everyone's post-workout <laughs> cravings. Um, and mine is there's a Dairy Queen right there. So I was really looking forward to like getting a nice vanilla cone, like something really cold to kind of quench my thirst and my like, I don't know, just like cool me down a little bit. But it was also 10 o'clock in the morning and <laughs> so that was a bummer, but I had my post-workout smoothie, so I was fine. Um, but anyway, all of that to say, like, I try to eat healthy, but I definitely indulge at times as well. Um, and then the third one, third recovery tip, I mean, I guess this is probably a little bit, uh, you probably get this a lot, a lot of people probably say this, but um, I think just prioritizing, like, rest and recovery in your daily life is really important. So I think that, I think that there are different kinds of people who, some who really embrace the runner lifestyle and, um, you know, they play video games all day or they watch Netflix all day or they sleep all day, uh, which is probably the category I would fall in. Um, but then there are others who like to stay busy and, and thrive off of like having a lot going on and, you know, they're up and about all day and they have, for example, some of the people on our team have kids that they have to take care of and that's a whole different lifestyle. Um, that they've made work for them. But um, I think for me, it's really important to like try to stay off my feet as much as I can and like prioritize some of those little things because I don't have a family to take care of. And um, not, this might sound bad. I'm not trying to knock people who have a family, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think just for me, that's, that's kind of the lifestyle that I've chosen. And um, you know, I want to run while I can and then focus on uh, shifting my priorities maybe later in life. Um, so yeah, that might be my number three. So like, I don't know, watching Netflix instead of uh, going out for, I don't know, going out downtown or, or getting in my Norma Tech booth instead of like, I don't know, meeting up for drinks or something. It's just kind of these little choices that you make, um, sometimes sacrificing some social um, experiences to kind of get the recovery. So I don't know, I think I think it's good to strike a balance, but um, for me, I'd probably lean more towards the recovery side. Cool. So now we've got some fun questions that have been uh, sent in. I've get, I've added a, a couple of my own. So you mentioned you go to bed at 8 p.m. Uh, so when do you watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette? Or, is, is, <laughs> or do you tape it and then watch it later on? Or is it on the West Coast, I guess, airing a little earlier? Yeah, so, so um, I guess it's pretty well known that when a lot of the groups are in Flagstaff, we all watch The Bachelor and Bachelorette together. Um, but we, so I don't have 
cable. Um, <laughs> I, use, I, don't, I don't think this is illegal. I use my parents' cable login for like the apps on the my TV and Apple TV and all that stuff. So I log into either Hulu or the ABC app. And so usually I watch the day after um, the episodes actually air. I usually watch them on Tuesdays. Um, so we try to time it to be a little earlier in the day. Um, it's a little bit more friendly to a runner's schedule. Um, and a lot of times we'll have it coincide with like a, uh, potluck dinner. So we'll kind of put, start dinner and put on the show at like 6, 630. Um, but those days are kind of an exception. Sometimes they run a little bit long. That's okay. Every now and then I'm not a monk. <laughs> I, uh, do have somewhat of a life occasionally, um, but yeah, those are uh, some exceptions, but generally it's like people, runners are kind of a similar crowd. Like people start past nine o'clock, everyone's like, all right, well, I got to go. Even if we still have a half an hour left of the show, like people <laughs> are filing out the door. So um, yeah, I guess that's, you know, we we try to make it a little earlier if we can, but uh, if not, we'll just kind of follow up in the next couple of days and everyone kind of tries to get it on their own time. So that's, pretty cool that you kind of miss out on like the the live tweeting of bachelor and bachelorette and bachelor in paradise which is a whole other animal uh so you miss out on like the the live social media reactions but it's it's good that you have other people to enjoy it with and, and you get to see some some reactions in person and i guess some some commentary as it, as it's going on are you, so is it bachelor and bachelorette and then are you on board with bachelor in paradise or is that too much for you you know i I just started getting into Bachelor and Bachelorette in the last, like, two or three years. So, I, I unfortunately, I, I'm still, if there's anyone listening to this who has footage of Josh Cox being on The Bachelorette, <laughs> I would love to see it. I will pay you for the videos. Like, I want to see it, but I've not been able to find it. I think he was on, like, the second or third season pretty early on, but I wasn't watching at the time, unfortunately. Um, so, I just started getting into it the last few seasons, and really... I don't know. For some reason, Bachelor in Paradise has never appealed to me. I've I've just never watched it. Um, the one exception to that was probably about a week and a half or two weeks ago. I was in Philadelphia visiting Martin um, Heher and his wife, uh, who live there now, and and we put on one episode of Bachelor in Paradise, and we watched like I don't know a half an hour of it, maybe. Um, so I I could see myself getting into it, but I don't know. It's just it's it's a different format that I'm not familiar with. And I don't know, I think you'd have to watch it with, with the right crew of people. Cause that's, I mean, when it gets, when it comes down to it, like I watch it for the reactions of the people <laughs> that I'm like, I, I kind of get my own little live, live show of, of reactions of other people that I'm watching it with um, versus, you know, not being able to follow along live with people on Twitter and stuff. And so um, I get my kind of own live viewing the next day, but um yeah, I don't know. For some reason, none of us really in Flagstaff have ever gotten that much into Bachelor in Paradise. I don't know why, but maybe it's because like we're already we already know all the people <laughs> on there, so it's not like these new crazy characters. Um, we already kind of know like what's going to happen on the season to a certain extent because we know the people that are involved with it. I'm not sure. I don't know what it is, but right. we've never been really that much into it. Yeah, I just got into it uh, recently, and so I'm not caught up just yet. I do the same exact thing, watch afterwards on, on Hulu and stuff, but yeah, this season got a little weird when, like, they suspended, like, the production and all that and, and all that controversy, I guess, that they had, and they're still kind of milking it out uh, right now, but yeah, I know it's a, it's it's hilarious, because, I mean, I also, like, am a huge fan of 
survivor. And so there's a little bit of that component that goes into Bachelor in Paradise where people are going to be leaving the island pretty soon. And um, so yeah, I, I find it pretty pretty funny. And um, yeah, I just started getting into to that as well. So that brings me to, I guess, like a follow-up question to this whole thing. And it's been asked, I guess, in that Runner's World article that, um, that Aaron wrote about, uh, you know, how runners love watching Bachelor and Bachelorette. Um, who would be the best bachelor or bachelorette candidate from the track and field community? Because it seems like the overwhelming answer for bachelorette is Emily himself. <laughs> oh, hands down. No question. Yeah, I think um, she would be the best one. She, yeah, she's, first of all, she's she's a really good friend of mine. Um, so I know her really well. I know like a lot of her quirks and, and I just think that, having everyone else be able to experience <laughs> like what all of the different facets of Emily's personality that I know is something that I think a lot of people would appreciate. And um, <laughs> she's just super bubbly and super positive and like obviously extremely accomplished and smart and funny. And she just is like, I feel like she has the whole package um, and she's gorgeous not to mention. So like, I, I feel like she just has it all. And um we we go back and forth like we exchange a lot of memes on instagram and stuff like that and text messages about like our dating lives or lack thereof (laughs) and um yeah i just i just i can't wait for her to find like her other half and um i think that being able to watch that unfold (laughs) on live tv would just be like the 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 funniest uh experience and i think it would bring a whole new level to that like when you know the person as well as I know Emily. So um, she would hands down be like my number one pick every time I get asked that question. Yeah. It's like the 2020 Olympic marathon or, or Olympic 10 K, whatever she might be participating in uh, would just have crazy ratings <laughs> just, just because she might've happened to have been on the show uh, in the lead up to the 2020 games. But I don't think Jerry's going to let that one happen. Um <laughs> On the guy side, yeah. I guess Simmons was was making a push for a little while. Uh, might have been joking. It might have just been, or he might have been totally serious about it. Uh, but of the, I guess, active like runners now, who would be a good one? Oh, that's a tough one. I I do think Nick would be a good choice. I don't know him all that well personally, um, but just what I do know about him, I think I think he would be awesome to watch. I think my answer to this question last time was Andrew Weeding, which I still think would be. Um, a great option. Uh, gosh, let me think who else. Um, I think Chris Derrick would be really interesting. I don't think he's single anymore. I don't know that for sure, but I don't think he's single anymore. Um, but I think that, <laughs> I think that he would bring a really, um, unique perspective to <laughs> totally. the bachelor. And I think, uh, he just has this really dry sense of humor and he's really witty and sarcastic and, like can be kind of dark at times and super smart. And um, yeah, I think that he would bring a really different perspective to the bachelor. And I think uh, it would definitely be intriguing enough for me to want to watch. So um, I don't want to offend his girlfriend, assuming uh, he has one that, you know, that I've said that, but um, I think that he would be a good pick. If if anything's been discussed on this podcast, I think these are the two things. Those two things are going to be the things that everyone's going to be talking about on Twitter afterwards. <laughs> Probably. Um, so a couple months back, I guess, there was a tweet by Britney Spears. She spotted wearing hokas. So let's make it official. Matt, would you offer to coach Britney Spears in at any distance of any race? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I was always team Brittany over team Christina. So, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely would coach her. Like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> what do you think? Not, she's not even a for? question. Like I wouldn't hesitate. <laughs> what do you think she'd be best suited for? Probably like a 5k, right? Oh yeah. I, I think she can run a good 5k. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's gotten fit again over the last couple of years with all of her Vegas shows. And, you know, I think it'd just be a matter of like honing, honing that fitness and, uh, getting in some, I don't know, some short tempo runs, add a little speed work. I think uh, I think she could improve dramatically in a short period of time, just given a little a little structure in her running workouts. Yeah. But it also, well, make, I mean, I, I yeah. think she runs as it is, and she she does like Pilates and yoga and all those things. So I think you know she's got a lot of the other components that are good for runners. So I think just uh, I don't know what her running regimen is, but I think um, dialing that in a little bit could uh i think she could go pretty quick i don't know i don't know what she could run but i think it would be pretty respectable i think a lot of people might be surprised yeah we'll make a graphic and we'll tease it with hit me baby one one a time <laughs> more time yeah i like yeah. that um so also from judging from twitter you seem to be a big shalane flanagan fan uh what's the most impressive thing you've seen from her in workouts or, or anything uh while she's spent some time with Oh, yeah, anyone anyone who follows me or knows me knows I've I've always had like the you know heart-shaped eyes for Shalane. Um I remember the first time I met her, well the first time I like had kind of an interaction with her was at the 2012 Olympic trials um in an elevator. She was she was running the marathon obviously and I was running the half the next day and I ran into her in the elevator the day before. Um that was like the closest interaction that I probably had with her. Um, and the year before I had met her really briefly at us cross, but I wouldn't call that a significant interaction. Um, and I don't think that she would remember that, but, uh, yeah, in the elevator, I was just starstruck. Um, <laughs> and then fast forward a couple of years and, uh, we're pretty good friends now. So, um, I'm a huge Shalane fan. Um, but honestly, like, I don't know, I, I appreciate and I, and I, uh, am in awe of everything that she's accomplished on the track and on the roads, but I like her more for the person that she is. Um, but I guess, let me think of all the stuff that she's done. I mean, I've just seen her rip like some really fast, te- like, like fast tempo runs in Flagstaff that would be close to what guys would do. And then mile repeats right after that. And then back into tempo runs and, um, that's a, a session that Ben, I think, has borrowed from Jerry and he has us do now. But I think at the time, maybe she was doing like a four-mile tempo and then a mix of maybe miles and 400s and then another four-mile tempo at the end. And for some reason, that one stands out. But um, she's just a grinder. Like everything she does, I think, is super impressive. And um, and that's I look at I look at some of the stuff that she does and some of the workouts and that's part of like where I get my ambition from. And, and that's why I'm always asking Ben, like, let's do a little bit more. Like, let's throw in this workout that Jerry gave Shalane and let's, you know, if it works out, like I don't want to change Ben's plan. But um, I think that's where I get a little bit of my, my ambition from and just seeing everything that she does. Like her total, her total body of work um, is just really impressive. And then obviously she has the accolades and the results that um, affirm like everything that she's doing. So I think, um, if I could, if I could emulate any, any aspects of what she's able to do, um, for myself, I think that like, I would, I would, uh, be able to 
sleep well at night knowing that I've accomplished something on the day. So I, I don't think it's any one thing in particular. It's not any one particular stellar workout, but it's just everything that she's done over the culmination of her career. So, um, yeah, she's just, she's an impressive woman and, and yeah, if I could do anything to emulate her, I'd be in great company. Listener, Sean Kennedy wants to know, what's the biggest difference you notice racing at sea level after training up in thin air? Um, gosh, that's tough. I, I don't think you necessarily feel better. Um, I think you're just able to kind of squeeze more out of yourself. Um, and that's kind of something that has to be learned. Like, I think people have this idea that you come to altitude, you train really hard, and then you go to sea level and everything is easy. Um, and it's not really the case. So I, I think it's just like you get you get some kind of toughness from training at altitude and um, you have to grind through a lot of workouts and just grit your teeth and like will yourself to do things. And at sea level, you kind of still have to do that, but I think that you, you figure out like that you are capable of getting so much more out of yourself than you realize. Um, and then every now and then, like you might have these days sprinkled in where you feel amazing and um, you feel untouchable, but those are, those are kind of rare. Um, but I think like the grit that you get from training at altitude is probably one of the biggest, um, non-theological, uh, advantages that you get from, from training up here. Uh, we've got, I guess, Ben Rosario chiming in. He wants me to ask you about your 10 by mile loop at, at 10 by mile at Kilty Loop in 452. Um, ask him and beg him to forgive me for not mentioning it in my podcast as one of our best ever workouts. So what was that, uh, workout like, like, and I guess when was that? Yeah, that I, a lot of people have been talking about that workout recently for some reason. Like, it's kind of gone away into the depths, and now it's been resurfacing lately, um, I think, because we had a couple guys do a workout there today. Um, but, yeah, I think it was – so it was in 2014. It was after I ran my half marathon PB in Houston, 61.47. Um, it was between then and the World Championship Marathon that year, which was in the end of March. Um and so it was probably like early March. I don't remember exactly when, but it was sometime in that in that time frame. And I think a little bit closer to the World Championships. And I think, gosh, I honestly don't remember. I think the goal of the workout was maybe ten by mile at like four fifty five, maybe to five minutes mm-hmm. on a minute recovery. It's at about seventy three, seventy four hundred feet. Um, I was by myself. I think I had been on the bike. Ben was definitely there. I can't remember if he was on the bike or not. Um, but I didn't have anyone else to run with and I was just hitting like 450, 450, 450, 450. And it was like, Ben, Ben <laughs> usually is not a fan of when we are faster than our prescribed paces. Um, cause he puts a lot of thought into like why we're running what we are. And so, you know, he had prescribed a little bit slower than that, but I was in such good shape at the time, especially for a half that, um, and, and it was just so fluid. It was so easy. And, and that was, like, where I, found, where I found my comfortable rhythm. It was one of those days where, like, you run a little bit slower than the 450 and you feel bad. You run a little bit faster than the 450 and you feel bad. But, like, for whatever reason, finding that rhythm in at 450 just felt right on that day. Um, and, yeah, so I guess, I don't know. I didn't think really that much of it at the time. Like, it was, <laughs> It's an altitude workout, so, like, I don't know. At the time, I was still kind of adjusting from workouts that I had done in college, and it didn't seem all that impressive to me. Um, and still, on paper, it doesn't seem that impressive. But 
the loop is fairly hilly that we do it on. So I don't know. I guess it was a good workout. If other people are saying it's a good workout and Ben says it, then I'll take his word for it. Um, yeah, I the other guys had that workout today, and I, I, I don't know their splits, but I think that their goal pace was five minutes. Um, we'll have, Scott, Scott and I will have that workout in a couple weeks because we're about three weeks behind um, Aaron Braun in his prep for – for Chicago. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see how it goes three weeks from now, but, um, I guess it was a good workout. I don't know. I kind of <laughs> like what I was saying with Shalane. Like, I don't really, I don't really, um, hinge my confidence on, on any one particular workout. Like uh, there are workouts for sure that give me more confidence than others, but it's just kind of a complete volume of everything that I've done over the last couple of years, um, that gives me confidence. So, um, certainly a workout like that will help, but, um, I don't know. I don't think of it as anything particularly special. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> uh, last one we've got from listeners. It's, uh, from Aaron who says, please ask him what a real cookie is. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this right before we got on the phone and, and we had this little banter going back and forth, um, on Twitter, but I don't know. I just, I so there was a period in in my life and I think it was 20 2011 going into 2012 where I was dealing with um this cramping injury this like stomach injury that wouldn't go away for like it ended up being 9 or 10 months and so as part of like trying to get that to go away I was experimenting with eliminating gluten from my diet and so I did that for about a year um didn't have like what I would call a real cookie, uh, sourdough <laughs> bread. Like I'm not much of a pasta person, but like I cut all that stuff out because I was, I really wanted to figure out this stomach issue. And, um, yeah. So just today I was commenting on how Scott Smith's mom had brought us cookies after the workout. And I don't remember how we started going back and forth, but, um, I think it was maybe Kellen who brought up something about it being a gluten-free cookie and it wasn't. And that was something that I clarified with Scott before I ate the cookie. Um, cause I just don't feel like it's the same. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I respect people who have gluten intolerance and celiac disease and I bake for them all the time. And I hope that anyone would acknowledge that cause I go to great lengths to try to make stuff that like Steph Bruce can eat and Aaron Stroud and stuff like that. So I try to be really accommodating, but, um, I just don't think that if, if given the choice between a gluten-free cookie and what I would call a real cookie, like there's no... There's no comparison. I don't know. Something <laughs> about the gluten makes the texture just right, and it makes, like, the perfect soft-baked chocolate chip cookie. And it's just, I don't know. Maybe someone can prove me wrong and send me a batch of cookies that are gluten-free that, that I wouldn't know, but um, I haven't been able to replicate that texture in a gluten-free cookie. So I would say a real cookie has to have gluten. I don't know. <laughs> that's, just my, that's just my opinion. Um, there are certainly other tasty treats that don't have gluten, but for me, like, a soft-baked chocolate chip cookie is the ultimate, like, post-race reward, and I haven't found one that's gluten-free that's as satisfying as a gluten-full cookie. All right. Someone proved me wrong. Yeah, exactly. Someone someone might be able to, to change your mind. Um, so the yeah. last few questions that we ask every single guest, um, the first one, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, assuming that they could hold a conversational pace with you, um, who would it be and where would this run take place? Who? Um, 
probably, gosh, I guess like I'll, the first one that popped into my head, I, I feel like I should go with that, even though, I don't know, it may not be like the most cultured answer, but um, the first thing that popped in my head, the first person that popped in my head was Ellen DeGeneres. Um, cause I be feel <laughs> like, yeah, I, I feel like she, so I obviously like have a lot of admiration for her and respect for her just like being another member of the LGBT community. And I just have such a respect for like what she has been through in her life and, and everything that she's done for our community. Um, and like the struggles that she's faced and the positivity that she's been able to spin out of that and um just like sharing her humor on her show like i just she's someone that i don't know kind of kind of like i was talking about david torrance before like she's someone that i can't imagine like being unhappy in her presence i just feel mm-hmm. like she has this uplifting spirit and um for me like growing up as a gay guy like it just watching her show and just watching the way that she lived her life was was um, something that I aspire to. So um, I think going to run for her and being able to express that to her and thank her for the way that she's impacted my life would be um, a special opportunity. So Ellen, and as to where we would want to go, I don't know. So I haven't been there yet, but before – so this fall, obviously we're doing the Frankfurt Marathon and – before we go to Frankfurt, we're doing a little altitude European training camp in St. Moritz. Um, and if any anyone who's listening, if, if any of you have followed along with, like, any of the Bowerman Track Club girls' Instagram stories over the last two months, like, you'll just be in awe of the beauty it's that insane. is St. Moritz. <laughs> so it's, like, it's unbelievable. Like, I, I, I kept – Every day I would watch their their Instagram stories and I would snap or I would uh, screenshot like the places that they were and the things <laughs> that they were doing. So I'm like, oh, I want to go there. I want to do this. I want to try this. I want to ice bath there. Like just every run is stunning. And, and just so I haven't been there yet, but I think I'm going to fall in love when I go there this fall and probably not going to want to leave. Um, <laughs> so I imagine that it would be like a really inspiring place. And so I think... That will that will probably be my answer, St. Moritz. Yeah, that's yesterday. Actually, I was running along the Hudson River, and uh, I ran into Colleen Quigley about like a half mile into to my run, and picked up the pace, and then you know said hello, and, <laughs> and then kept up with her for like another almost three miles. And, and before I started like wheezing, and then I turned back because I was like, I can't bear it here. <laughs> and uh, I was ta- as she mentioned, your name came up at one point, and. Um, she's like, yeah, just totally jealous that he's going to be in Samaritz, uh next to, in a, in just a couple of weeks, I think. And uh, I was saying like, yeah, it just seems like from Instagram stories, you guys are living like this high life that was awesome for a couple of weeks. And it all seems to have paid off for them uh, at the World Championships. So hopefully you have the same results uh, transfer over for Frankfurt. Um, last question has nothing to do with running. Uh, you get 25 shots from half court of a basketball court. Uh, if you make one, you win $25 million. If you make none, then you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt a shot? No. <laughs> I, I, oh. <laughs> yeah, $25 million is enticing, but, like, I don't know. I've never, I've never known 
like I've never gotten a taste of what it's like to have that much money. So <laughs> I think I can just I can just live in like blissful ignorance, not knowing what it's like to have that. Um, yeah. And plus, like, I don't want all the, like, you win $20, like, everyone comes out of the woodwork and, <laughs> and they want it, like, I don't know, they want a piece of it, and I just don't want to deal with all that. And I don't think the risk is worth it. Like, I, I don't know, I played basketball for years when I was a kid, but I would say, I don't know, between my brother and I, my brother would probably take a shot. Like, I think he was good enough at basketball that he could probably, he could probably drop one out of 25 at least. But I wouldn't be confident enough. Plus, like, I don't know, my arms have gotten smaller over the years since I started marathoning, and I honestly don't know if I could even get a shot to basket, like to the range <laughs> of the basket. So like, I would probably just just sidestep that altogether and, and not take the shot. Has, does anyone say that they'll take the shot? Oh, yeah, it's like maniacs, like Molly Huddle, uh, Nick Simmons, uh, I think Drew Hunter has like, like there's oh, a bunch man. of people who have said yes, and they're just risk-takers. <laughs> You know what though? Put put them in that real life scenario, and I feel like they would change their mind. If it was really, if it was really at stake, I don't think they would do it. Who would do yeah. that? I, I don't think he would do it. If Nick Simmons really wants to get those views up on on his blog, I think I think it's something he should consider. <laughs> That's true. But then, like, will they let him blog from prison? <laughs> I don't know. Right. I, I don't know like prison well enough, but it seems like a risk that's not worth taking. Right. Uh, Matt, this is a pleasure. Um, wishing you all the best of luck in your training the next couple of weeks. It sounds like it's going to get pretty intense uh, the next eight or so weeks. Uh, so, uh, yeah, good luck with everything, and uh, thanks a lot for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to maybe do another one of these after Frankfurt, and assuming we all run what we're hoping to run, it'll be good to me. a fun conversation. Absolutely. All right, Matt, take care. That interview was brought to you by Roll Recovery. Remember to check them out. We've got the R8, the R3, the stretching mat, all great stuff. And actually, right now, you get free shipping with a purchase of over $100 within the United States. And they've got a bundle deal where you can get the R3 and the stretch mat with some 15% off with a promo code R3SMBUNDLE. So check them out. Follow them on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Roll Recovery, and we still got that contest going on. So if you're listening to this on Saturday, there's still time to tweet at Sidious Mag with hashtag Roll Sidious, and you guess my time for the Fifth Avenue Mile. The person who gets it right on the nose or the closest, without going over, price is right rules, um, will win an R3 foot roller. We'll have two winners actually now. We'll have one from Twitter and one from Instagram. So check those contests out. Check out Roll Recovery. Lots of good stuff uh, on their end. And I think that does it for this week's episode. Uh, I think we'll try and get someone like Craig Lutz next week. Maybe Scott Smith. We'll figure it out. It will be another NAZ person. I'll mix in a couple other episodes since there are some athletes here in New York City for Fifth Avenue Miles. So I'll snag some interviews. Um, And yeah, so in the meantime, don't miss it. Subscribe on iTunes, leave a five-star review, take your friend's phone, subscribe on iTunes, leave a five-star review. We've got some requests to add the podcast to Stitcher, so we're going to work on that uh, in the next couple days. But yeah, that's about it. It's been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running.